0: So um, I uh, have the privilege of leading the young adults, and we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I just did our, I think it's 98th message in the Gospel of Luke. So we've been there for a while. And there's some things that going through, I mean, I've read the Gospel of Luke, I don't know how many times, but there are things you go through, you pick up stuff that you've read maybe a dozen times and thought, well, I've never seen that before. And, And as we were going through the end of the Gospel of Luke, and we're in the crucifixion, the parallel passage that I just read uh, from Matthew, that section of Scripture. And there's some things that, that struck me, and I, and I thought, you know, the Lord put on my heart to share tonight. So I want to uh, share them with you and see what the Lord has for us. So we meet some people on, in that scene. We, we meet some people in the crucifixion scene. And the three synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all, all have introduced us to a man named Simon the Cyrenian. Now, he has made the pilgrimage to the Passover. And if you were in, uh, if you were a Jew and you live near Jerusalem or in Jerusalem, you were required to go as a requirement. But if you live further away, it was an optional thing. And for some people, they live far enough away where this was a pilgrimage, something they'd save up for a long time. And um, uh, so, you know, it, it might be in their bucket list. Things to do before I die, I want to make one Passover in Israel or in Jerusalem. So... <clears throat> it is most likely that he saved up for some time to be able to make it to this Passover. And um, something happens that changes his plan, something that he did not plan on. And he is compelled to carry the cross for Jesus as Jesus makes his way to Golgotha. Uh, This is not a normal case. Uh, Criminals to be crucified were required to carry their own crosses or their own cross piece as part of the punishment. The Romans... Borrowing this from the great conqueror, Ashurbanipal, who was believed to have invented this gruesome process, and it started out with a stake. And as Asher Ashurbanipal would approach a city and it would, it would be victorious over the city, they would impale people, chief people in the city, the generals, the leaders, and they impale them on these stakes. 700 years later, the Romans have refined this now to a more, a more gruesome, even uh, longer process, more embarrassing, uh, more shameful. And they, the process was they would first scourge or whip the criminal, then they would tie the cross piece to their arms and make them carry it to the location of the crucifixion. It was always in a public area. It was a, a very public procession, and it was designed to contribute to the humiliation, to the embarrassment, to the shame, so it wasn't done in secret. Now, to make it more difficult, the Roman soldiers would tie a leather strap around the ankle of the criminal, the convicted person, And every once in a while they jerk on that leather strap and it would cause them to trip and fall. Now if your arms are strapped to a pole, obviously you have nothing to stop your fall. And so this again would bring great injury and and harm, more embarrassment. And when they arrived at the crucifixion site, they would place them place the spikes through their wrists. They would, you know, the, the the definition of a wrist or the biblical term for wrist is from the fingertips to the elbow. So when it says they pierced his hands. It could be anywhere in that section, most likely. Well, the Romans talked about uh, piercing the wrists. And uh, they, then they would either lay them on the vertical pole, or, or if the pole was already in the ground, they would hoist them up and, and, and anchor them on the pole. And so, you know, you didn't carry the whole cross, you carried just the crossbeam. And then they would finish the process by nailing a spike through their feet. And then they would be there on display. First-hand accounts record that they were usually stripped completely naked. As part of the shame, part of the indignity, on public display, dying naked, a slow, agonizing, shameful death, writhing in agony, and struggling for every breath. It was so cruel that it was per- forbidden to be performed on Roman citizens. We get the English word excruciating from the Latin word excruciatus, uh, or out of the cross. That's what excruciating, that's where we get the word from. Now, some died from the pain and the flogging, some from their wounds, but to make it even more graphic, Josephus writes that it took some a whole week to die, and in the meantime, if they were crucified low enough, jackals and wild dogs would eat at them while they were dying. When someone spoke of carrying the cross, or when they saw someone carrying the cross, they were literally witnessing dead men walking. Nobody survived the cross. It was always to your death. Now, Jesus is probably weak from the beating, the flogging, and he is unable to carry the cross. And so, under Roman law, a Roman soldier could tap you on the shoulder with his spear or with his sword, and he could command you into one mile of service. And so, Simon the Cyrenian, who is here on this pilgrimage to make the Passover his maybe once-in-a-lifetime thing, and now he's been charged with this. It's called the Ingarian Rite. He's now been, been um, called into service. Now, by taking the cross, it most certainly had blood on it, and now he was unclean. This pilgrimage, this once-in-a-lifetime trip to Jerusalem, this Passover, was now wasted. It was ruined, and he could not participate in any of the Passover rituals. He would have to return home. This once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage, now ruined, explained to his family, sorry. We saved up, spent all this money, and I didn't get to go. So Simon carries the cross all the way to Calvary, the place shaped like a skull, where he witnesses the crucifixion of Jesus. There between two other crosses, two convicted criminals. Now we encounter two other people. We meet two criminals crucified on either side of Jesus, both guilty of capital crimes. When you compare the different accounts of the Gospels, uh, you get a more complete picture of what's happening here, but... If you have the Matthew's gospel handy still, it's um, Matthew chapter 27, verse 34, it says, And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocked with the scribes and elders and said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and, and we will believe. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. So Jesus is hanging on the cross between these two criminals, and both of these criminals, it says, were also criticizing him, reviling him. Joining the crowd, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, Now, to add to this group of people, we also meet the religious leaders, some members of the Sanhedrin, who have met earlier that day to order their crucifixion for, you know, blaspheming. It's a capital crime. And now they're here to gloat, to vilify, to spit on, to disparage, to mock Jesus. As uh, we read in our passage, then we also have the soldiers, the Roman soldiers who carry out the execution of a convicted criminal. They have performed this execution by crucifixion many, many times. This was rather gruesome but common task. The Roman soldiers were experts at it. In 4 BC, the Roman general Verus crucified 2,000 Jews. In the first century BC, Crassus ordered the uh, crucifixion of 6,000 captured slaves. Alexander the Great was uh, repudiated to have crucified 2,000 survivors from his siege of the Phoenician city of Tyre. Jewish King Alexander Jannaeus, king of Judea from 103 to 76 BC, crucified 800 rebels, said to be Pharisees, in the middle of Jerusalem. And in the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70 uh, by Titus Vespasian with the four Roman legions, they crucified so many Jews that historians record there was a shortage of wood. These hardened Roman soldiers had probably witnessed hundreds of crucifixions. So we've met Simon the Cyrene, the criminals crucified next to Jesus, the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers all at the crucifixion scene. But when we look closely, I think uh, we see something interesting. Let's visit first uh, Simon the Cyrenian. Now, at Pentecost, men gathered from Cyrene, this is in Acts uh, 6.19, it mentions the synagogue of the Cyrenes. Uh, Cyrene is the city of the Jews. It's given special privileges by Alexander when he conquers uh, Judea. And in Acts 13.1 it says, Now the church that was in Antioch, there was certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Simeon is mentioned in the Antioch church. And we know from Acts 15.14 that Simon Peter was called Simeon. So Simeon is just another name for Simon. So uh, possibly that's him. But his sons are more famously, uh, famously known, apparently, because, at least well known to the church, because Mark makes a point of mentioning them in this scene. In Mark fifteen twenty one, it says, "Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. So Mark assumes, you guys know who, you know, Alexander and Rufus are. And uh, in Romans sixteen thirteen, it tells it says, "Greet Rufus and his mother Alexander." His brother is not mentioned. It. It's a church tradition that he was martyred in the early uh, early in the church. Interestingly, in nineteen forty one, in November, on the southwestern slope of the Kidron, a tomb was discovered. Twice inside this tomb, it says, "Tomb of Alexander, the son of Simon the Cyrenian." So this man came to celebrate the Passover. He was hoping to, to do something that he would celebrate the rest of his life, take home with him and share with family and friends. Uh, and that hope was taken from him. Has that ever happened to you? You have a plan, a desire, a hope. You're well on your way to executing it. And then things happen that you can't control. In this case, God had another plan Simon instead comes face to face with the Son of God. Something about this encounter changes his life forever. His testimony was so powerful that it changed his wife and his sons. They become pillars in the church. This plan that he had hoped and desired for was taken from him and turned into something so much greater, so much more profound. Now, I'm sure in the moment... He didn't think, oh boy, God is changing my plan. I know that's not how I think. Something happened to him. Let's look at the criminals crucified next to Jesus. In Luke 23, verse 39, it says, when one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, so now there was two, but now this one of them was blaspheming him, saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? Notice what this criminal says next. He says, And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. We indeed justly. He recognizes that he is a sinner. And he recognizes Jesus' innocence. This man has done nothing, nothing wrong. Then verse 42, then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice the words here, Lord, there's a future still to come, your kingdom, the Messiah. Remember in Matthew's gospel we read earlier, they were both mocking Jesus, but something happened to one of the thieves. Something spoke to him, and he knew his sin. He acknowledged, he knew he deserved death, He also knew that there was something after death. And he said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, would you remember me? Would you remember me? Not, would you honor me? Not, would you grant me to sit at your right hand? I mean, his understanding is even deeper than the apostles had expressed. Just remember me, Lord. He's nailed to a cross... He can do nothing to earn his salvation. He can't be baptized. He doesn't even know the sinner's prayer. And this is a picture that's preserved for us through all eternity. Jesus can save anyone, and anyone can be saved. Jesus said in verse 43 Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So this thief receives salvation. Now, some time ago, I think it was Alistair Begg. He described what his entrance into heaven would have been like. He enters into the pearly gates, and of course, Peter's still on Earth, so Peter's not there to greet him. And an angel asks if he knows or has said the sinner's prayer, and he says, "Well, no. Do you understand the Trinity? No. Can you describe what sanctifi- sanctification is or transubstantiation, or do you have a, a um, you know epistemology or a systematic theology? Do you understand all these things? No." I put my faith in Jesus, the Son of God, and he said he'd meet me here. So next on our list is the Jewish leaders. In John's Gospel, in chapter 19, verse 38, we read um, after this, that is, after, the, after the, 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 the soldier had stuck the spear in his side, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who first came by Jesus uh, to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Luke 23 tells us that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, and it describes him as a, a good and a just man. And in the description it says in verse 51... He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, the city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. Waiting for the kingdom of God is code for, or shorthand for, looking for the Messiah, waiting for the kingdom to come. So he's a secret follower of Jesus. Two men hiding in the shadows for fear of retribution and the consequences, two secret followers they step out now after his death certainly this would cause some backlash some the word is going to get out these two guys buried jesus they ministered to him they took care of the body they saw something in jesus something that made them come out of hiding and take a public action at great personal risk and then finally we have the roman soldiers in Luke 23, verse 47, it says, So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. This comment is also recorded in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-four. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared, uh, feared greatly, uh, uh, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. Both accounts say that something happened to them. They witnessed something that changed their minds. Matthew's gospel speaks of an earthquake. Certainly, certainly, darkness for three hours would cause concern. These hardened soldiers who have executed hundreds, maybe even thousands before, noticed. They took notice. And they acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God. Now, if we look at these different men all affected by Jesus' life, but especially in the final moments, in his death. Simon the Cyrenian, the criminals crucified next to Jesus, the Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers who crucified him. It makes you wonder, what was it in these last moments that made a difference in their lives? I want to spend the last portion of our time together exploring that uh, for a little bit with you. The title of my message um, was, What Should a Christian Look Like? And, you know, I, I struggle with titles. So um, it could be, What Does a Christian Look Like? What, what Would a Christian Look Like? Should a Christian? And the short answer, the rather obvious one, is, Should Look Like Jesus. That's what a Christian should look like. And I think that's what these men see. But in the book of Acts, it says, in Acts eleven twenty five. 25, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was for a whole year that they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So they had been called disciples in Acts 1.15, they had been called believers in Acts 5.14, they had been called witnesses in Acts 5.32, they had been called brothers Acts uh, 6.3. Uh, they had been called followers of the way in Acts 9.2, and they had been called saints in Acts 9.13, and now they would be called Christians. I have read that the term originally was used derogatorily, like the main, many might say it today. Oh, he's a Christian, sort of with this disdain, sort of spitting it out. But the early Christians weren't embarrassed. They embraced the title. I'm glad that you look at me and say I'm a follower of Christ. They identified themselves as Christians even to their deaths. Little Christ's or followers of Jesus. I want to elaborate a little bit on Jesus' life and death because not only did Jesus live well, but he died well. And what I mean by this is that we look at the end of Jesus' life under the testing, the trials, the unfair accusations, the excruciating and humbling, even embarrassing death on the cross. We see that even in his worst moments, Jesus lived consistently to the end. There are seven sayings that Jesus utters from the cross. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. That's Luke twenty-three thirty-four. Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It says that to the thief in Luke 23, 43. Woman behold your son John 19:26 and 27 My God my God why have you forsaken me Matthew 27:46 I thirst John 19:28 and it is finished John 19:30 and father into your hands I commit my spirit Luke 23:46 Now I'm going to talk about these briefly because I think they give us a clue into Jesus' final moments and what may have impacted these people who saw him on the cross. And, and let me preface this with one other warning, and that is we don't know the exact order. I've pieced this together as I think what I think is the right order, but the order is not important. It's what he said. So the first one, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Luke 23, 34. I am sure that the Roman soldiers have never heard that before. Criminals on the cross next to Jesus, the crowd, the Jews, even the leaders in the Sanhedrin, have probably never seen a crucified criminal asking God to forgive them. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. But isn't he just living by what he told us? Luke 6, 28, bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. In his dying moments, he asked God to forgive them. What an impact this must have had on those who watched. What would happen if we lived that way? What impact would we have on those around us? Next we have, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43, offering salvation freely and undeservedly. The criminal knows he's not worthy of salvation. He didn't do anything to earn it, and he can't do anything to earn it. Jesus gives it to him freely. Now, he had to believe, both Jesus and the criminal had to believe that he could do this, or it would be a meaningless conversation. Just like he told the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, but to prove that that I have the ability to forgive your sins, take your bed, rise up, and, and walk. I can heal you because I can... Forgive you your sins. But didn't he say to Nicodemus, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Until his dying moments, he was still living out the truth. Next, woman, behold your son. John 19, 26 and 27. Woman, behold your son. In Exodus 20, God instructs his followers. The Jews were supposed to honor their mother and father. Paul repeats this in Ephesians. Jesus criticizes the Jews in Mark chapter 7 who teach their followers to not honor their mother and their father. It's a criticism of them because they got away, they found a way, a loophole that they could say whatever benefit I was to you, I I give that to God, it's a blessing to God now and I'm free from any obligation to honor you. Even in death, in his last moments, Jesus made sure that his mother was taken care of. Then, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. So Jesus, in quoting Psalm 22, the opening lines of Psalm 22 is pointing us to that. Psalm 22, that's the first line of Psalm 22. For the first time in eternity, Jesus is now no longer in fellowship with the Father. Why have you forsaken me? Why am I alone on the cross? Now, I want to read a couple of verses from Psalm 22 to give you a picture of what I think is going on here. It starts off, of course, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, verse 12 and 13, many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Who else do we know is like a raging or roaring lion? First Peter 5.8 says uh, Satan, the devil himself. Psalm 22, verse 16 through 18. For the dogs have surrounded me, the, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. Clearly, this is what is going on. This is, I, I don't know what vision David had on what he's writing about, but this is, as if he's on the cross speaking. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, in Deuteronomy 2 and 3, we read of a king, Og, in Bashan. He was a rephaim, a rephaim, or giant one. Back in Numbers 13, we read the giants are called Nephilim. Many believe these giants were the offspring of the angels who fell. Genesis 6, chapter 4. So there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. I believe Jesus is pointing to Psalm 22 because in that moment he's experiencing something in the spiritual realm. He's just giving a picture into what is going on. His reference, this reference of being surrounded by the bulls of Bashan are these demonic beings. He is being beckoned by the crowd, save yourself. If you're the son of God, save yourself. Where has Jesus heard this before? In verse 16 in Psalm 22, it says, The dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. When Jesus is tested by Satan, tempted, it says when he failed that Satan left for a more ripe opportunity. I think Satan has returned here. And what is happening is the crowd is saying, Save yourself. Save yourself. You can shortcut all this, just get off the cross. He's being tempted to save himself. But if Jesus saved himself, he couldn't save you or me. He could have done that. He told Peter in the garden, don't you know that I can call down 12 legions away? That's 72,000 angels. It would probably take one, a very simple task, to pull the nails out, take them off the cross, and, and it would be over. He could have done that. But if he had done that, all would be lost. He couldn't save you, couldn't save me. Because he didn't call the angel to save him, you a man on the cross, he can save you and I. It's literally not the nails that held Jesus to the cross. it was his love for you and me. Next, I thirst, John 19:28. He is fully human, experiencing life as a human. In Hebrews chapter four, verse 14, it talks about him being a better high priest, because not only is he God, but he, experiencing, he experienced suffering on earth as a man. He uh, can relate to our sufferings. He can relate to our weaknesses. And this gives us the ability to enter boldly into the throne of God to receive grace in time of trouble. In John 19.30 then it says that Jesus received our wine and then he said it is finished and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The Greek word for it is finished is to die It's been taught a lot of times. The word means it is finished. It's the English translation of the Greek. It is finished is the Greek translation of the word die." Uh, it comes from the verb teleo, which means to bring to an end, to bring to completion. So if you ran across the finish line in a race, you could say to "telestai." I have finished. If you make the last car payment on your car, you could say Tell I finished the task that I had set out to do, and it's finished. But one of the things that, that, that is added here that's missing in English is the verb itself is in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means it is an action that is in the past, but it continues to be in effect today, into the future. So not only did Jesus finish the task, but he completed it forever. It is still in effect today. It is finished. There are a couple of things that were accomplished, finished, completed by his death on the cross. First, he fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture. In John nineteen twenty-eight, in this description, it says, Jesus, knowing all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Now, as a vessel full of wine or sour wine was sitting there, and they filled the sponge with sour wine put it on hyssop and put it up to his mouth. So then Jesus received the sour wine and he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So Jesus' life and death completed many prophecies, but he fulfilled every single one that he had to to make sure that they were all complete, that he would have every prophecy fulfilled to prove that he was the Messiah. Close to the point of death, he remembered every pro- prophecy the last one, and he was sure that all the prophecies were fulfilled, all the prophecies that would prove him to be the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, to die as the perfect unblemished lamb, undefiled, the perfect sacrifice, he declared, it is finished. I've done what I came to accomplish. Now, there are more prophecies fulfilled, a couple in three days, when he rises from the dead and others thousands of years into the future. But the 300 or so that he had already fulfilled… Had to do with his coming as a suffering servant, bringing healing to the world, breaking the bonds of sin. That was now accomplished. The other thing that he did by completing this, that he could say it is finished, is he paid the price for sin. The finished work on the cross was the judgment and the punishment of sin necessary for our redemption. Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. God covered them with garments made from skins of animals. This is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. But to remove the skin from an animal, to do so, you must kill it first. And by doing this, he established a principle that something or someone had to die for sin to be covered or dealt with. The killing of an animal to cover the sin of Adam and Eve foreshadows the sacrifice required in the law to cover the Israelites' sin and then eventually to cover the sin of mankind. Ultimately, this points to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to cover our sins and remove them. Because of our sin, a price needed to be paid to satisfy the judgment that sin requires. When Jesus was on the cross, God placed on him the sins of the world. In 1 John chapter 2, 2, as we've been studying in the morning um, a few weeks ago, well, a couple of months ago, it says uh, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. God judged all sin all, for all eternity, all past sin, all future sin, all sin. He laid on Christ and judged him for it. And by doing that, he fulfilled the requirement of judgment. It's interesting that this is described, in fact, prophesied in Isaiah 53. And I, and I, I was going to read all of Isaiah 53, it's 12 uh, verses. I'm going to read a few here just to highlight some things. But uh, it's interesting that even today, we, we bought this building from a Jewish synagogue. And I asked him, you know, what do you guys think about Isaiah 53? We don't read it. Synagogues all across America, around the world... Most of them don't even read Isaiah 53. They read Scripture. They read through the Old Testament, through the year. They have prescribed readings. Listed in that is never Isaiah 53. They just don't read it because it speaks of the suffering servant, and it pictures Jesus on the cross. pictures someone paying the penalty for sin, and it's a Messianic verse. So it means the Messiah is going to come and die. I mean, Isaiah 53, verse 3, He is despised, rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to bear our grief and carry our sorrows. Um, verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. So he's going to be punished, he's going to be bruised, he's going to be beaten. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him our sin. Prophesied 700 years before Jesus came. Verse 8, then he was taken from prison and from judgment. Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Cut off means killed. Taken from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people... He was stricken. So Isaiah said he's not going to die for his own sin. He's going to die for our sin. Verse 10: Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. The Messiah is going to be made an offering for sin. Now, the Jews know Isaiah 53. And I wonder, as they're sitting there mocking Jesus, certainly two of them are remembering this verse—the suffering Messiah. And there were there were different camps of beliefs in the in the in the Jewish history. They struggled with this, and so they just kind of ignored it. Everybody was expecting Jesus to come and be the reigning king, coming into his kingdom, all of that stuff. But the suffering thing, I. That doesn't fit our theology, so we're just going to ignore it. So when he said it is finished, he had fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture, and he paid the price for sin, and by shedding his blood, we can receive forgiveness. You know, Hebrews nine twenty two. without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. When he paid the price for sin, he made a way and secured for us a way to receive forgiveness of sin and to receive the gift of eternal life. It is finished. The resurrection proved that he could do what he did, but he didn't have to rise from the dead to pay for our sin. That was already paid for. It was already finished. The resurrection is the stamp. I said I can forgive you. I died for your sins. The least you can do if you're going to say that is you can rise from the dead to prove you can do it. Jesus did. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke 23, verse 43. He knew who he was. He knew whom he had trusted. He knew in whose hands held his destiny. So, as we wrap up, as I bring this thing in for landing, this is the first circling of the airport. (laughs) What is a Christian supposed to look like? Well, the short answer is Jesus. The longer, more difficult answer is Jesus under pressure. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 says, And he who, who is he who will harm you when, if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Suffer for righteousness' sake. I thought when we got saved, everything's supposed to go happy and wonderful and unicorns and rainbows. and Do not be a, a, afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense for everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they def- defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if, we, uh, if it is the will of God for us to suffer for doing good than for evil. Under pressure is when all this comes out. To be honest with you, Nobody really cares what your conduct is when things are going well. That's great. Millionaire, got a new house, nice car, job's going great, family's good. What they're watching is when things are going well. That's when what's inside comes out. That's what I think these different people saw at the cross. In the last moments of Jesus' life, he wasn't putting this on. This was not something fake. This is not a presentation he made. This is who he was and who he is. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He walked in forgiveness. Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Trust in our eternal hope. Woman, behold your son. Keep our integrity Honor God's word. Live in the dark the way we would live in the light. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think we need to understand that this is a spiritual battle. Our battle is not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of darkness in this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We need to remember that when you're having an argument with somebody who is an unbeliever or someone over a spiritual matter, it is a spiritual battle your enemy is not the person you're talking with the en- the enemy is the one who's influencing this person to make decisions and say and do the things that they are doing i thirst we should remember that we have a high priest better than any other he lived as a human he can relate to our weaknesses he has been tempted in all ways and yet, He has granted us the ability to come boldly into the throne of grace to obtain mercy, to find grace to help in time of need. It is finished. Remember, it's already done. There's nothing we can add or subtract. We can't get bonus points or brownie points from God. The work is finished. We cannot add to our salvation, we don't deserve our salvation. It's a gift. Rest and walk in that. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Know where you're going. Our home is not here, it's in heaven. And by the way, a Christian also looks like Simon the Cyrenian, the guys whose dreams are dashed to pieces for something far better. The criminal who's guilty and deserving of death with no hope of, uh, or no way of saving himself. The Roman soldier who's committed horrible atrocities in the name of war and is desperately in need of hope. And a couple of secret Christians in influential places that God has behind the scenes to, to do something for him. But a Christian also looks like you and me. Look around You're in some pretty horrible company. (laughs) I know, because I know me. (laughs) What a blessing that is. We don't have to be holy to come to Christ. We come to Christ unholy so that he can make us that way. He can make us holy. A famous comedian, uh, I'll close with this. A famous comedian used to say, I would never want to belong to a club that would allow me to be a member. Well, welcome to the club. Christian, let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you, Jesus, that you came willingly. It even says that having done all this, you gave up your spirit. You were in control the whole time. The nails didn't hold you to the cross. Your love for us did. And we are so thankful. We are so indebted to you. You paid the debt that we didn't know for the sin that we had that we couldn't pay for. And we thank you for that. We'll spend eternity thanking you, but we can start here. And Lord, help us to live the lives worthy of being called Christians, whatever whatever that is for each one of us. I know I have my own struggles. I I pray, Lord, you would help me to have victory in those areas, but I pray for everyone here that that struggles with some area in their life where they don't measure up. The, the perfect standard that we, none of us do, but help us to be better, help us to be uh, led by your Spirit, help us to be uh, willing to have surgery done in our hearts in the areas that need to be done, and help us to be effective witnesses to the lost that are dying and going to hell because they need to see you. And I know there are unspoken needs here um, tonight. I, I pray, Lord, that as people just raise their voices, their hearts to you in, 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 the, in the silence of their own heart, that, that you would speak to them, that you would meet every need that is, um, is brought here tonight. And most of all, I pray that you'd be glorified in our lives. And we ask this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.